I appreciate you all tuning into my first episode with two-time NCAA Final Four coach Cheryl Burnett. For being my first podcast that I have hosted, it was a great interview, and I appreciate Cheryl being on. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to this podcast and, and the several I have lined up over the next couple of weeks. But today, though, we have a really cool guest on. Um, first, a little bit of a backstory, though, as to why I asked this person to be on my show. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons, and, and I'm very appreciative that he agreed to join. Um, but the whole purpose of my podcast is to bring you people who have had successful careers in sports, whether that be playing, uh, personnel-wise, coaching. And the hope is that the stories of how they became successful are interesting, informative, uh, provide inspiration. And I also want my guests to spend time talking about what it took for them to start in the sports field and how they worked their way up with the hopes that listeners can take away something that will help them help them better themselves and whatever it is they choose to do, not just sports. So anyway, and the other reason too is, um, as you probably know, I watch a lot of you know, baseball movies, documentaries, uh, right now re-watching games on TV. Um, and for years, I've always said my favorite baseball documentary is titled Playing for Peanuts. It followed an independently baseball team, the South Georgia Peanuts, for a whole season. Everything from coaches meetings, players meetings, uh, you know, in the dugout. It was just an, an exclusive look at a whole season with an in independent league baseball team. So it really gave me an appreciation for what independent league baseball is all about. Well, my guest today was on that documentary. And not only that, but this person has the exact resume of the type of stories that I want shared here in terms of showing people that hard work pays off and you can continue to move up and chase your dreams. So uh, he started off as a radio play-by-play -play announcer at different colleges, was an intern at the 2006 Winter Olympics, would go on to do play-by-play -play for several professional sports teams, uh, starting off at the college summer level, moving to independent league, then getting the call to affiliated baseball, and eventually the show with the San Diego Padres as their official talk show host. Uh, and this led to today, where when baseball is played again with fans, you will definitely see this guy on the video board at City Field, home of the New York Mets. He is the New York Mets official game day stadium host slash MC and writer for the Madison Square Garden Network, Billboard News, and The Hollywood Reporter. Fun fact, he was also once a Guinness World Records judge and was the first player in the history of ABC's The $100,000 Pyramid Show to win both the $150,000 prize and the bonus vacation. So with all that, all the way from New York City, it is my pleasure to have on Mike Janella. Mike, uh, thanks again for being on and unprecedented times right now for sure but how are you holding up up there in new york well damn man that's a hell of an intro thanks so much for for putting me on i appreciate that um doing well uh, obviously a lot going on um between global pandemic and uh all the protests that are happening and new york seems to be kind of the center for all of this going on so uh no place i'd rather be best city in the world it's great seeing everyone kind of coming together for for some positive things nowadays when we've all sort of been inside for the last few months. So, uh, yeah, hanging in there, but, uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, uh, excited about our conversation today and, and in talking about New York, um, obviously, you know, I, uh, I was telling you earlier, I go to New York often. It's, I consider it my favorite city in the world. Uh, but you actually grew up, it looks like just outside New York, you grew up in, uh, in New Jersey. So I want to go back to, kind of your life growing up uh, and what led you to your time at Syracuse? Yeah, Jersey boy. I'm about uh, like a 45 minute drive from Midtown Manhattan to where I grew up. So shout out to the Jersey Shore. 
And I always just grew up in the shadow of New York City. It was always the cool place to go. It was always New York TV stations that we got on TV. It was always the New York sports teams we rooted for growing up. And I was a huge sports guy from the very beginning, sports kid, I guess you could say. Um, like a lot of kids, I dreamt of becoming a pro athlete. I learned very early on when I was short and fat and uncoordinated and slow and just not good at any sports that I wasn't going to play them for a living. But just watching them, I always loved listening to the men and women that were broadcasting them. And I forget who, if I tell a story of my life, it's either Bob Costas or it's Chris Berman or it's Al Michaels. It's somebody said at some game I was watching, like, man, I can't believe that we get to be here. I get to pay. I get paid to be able to watch this happen live in front of in front of my face or in front of my eyes, something like that. And I forget who said it or what game it was even, but that sentiment stuck with me. I was maybe 10 years old. And I thought, man, it's actually not a bad gig. If I can sort of put my life's path in that direction, then I'll be able to maybe someday make it to the major leagues or the NBA, not as a player, but as someone covering it, someone involved in that world, someone that's there on the sidelines uh, in some capacity. And so I just started doing my research. And it was already middle school when I would look up. You know, Bob Costas was my favorite broadcaster in the mid-90s. So I looked up, okay, where did he go to college? What did he do to get on that path to where he is now? Because that's where I want to be someday. And then you find other guys like Marv Albert and Mike Tirico and people like that. And you realize, at least for me, wow, they all went to the same school. Uh, so Syracuse for me, I think from the age of maybe 13 or 14, was uh, the destination. Uh, no other option for me in my mind. And I just patterned everything in my high school career, extracurriculars, uh, what I did for fun, everything was with that target goal in mind of ending up uh, at the time an orange men and now just an orange. But <laughs> luckily it worked out. Absolutely. And, and obviously going to school where a uh, very, very successful uh, athletic department, especially on the men's basketball side. Uh, and so were those experiences there at Syracuse, you know, were you interacting with with like Jim Bayheim, or did you have, you know, were you broadcasting games? Were you doing internships? What about your time at Syracuse uh, kind of helped lead you to the next step, uh, which was, uh, looks like the Matsu Miners uh, in Alaska? Yeah, a bit ironic because in Syracuse, I didn't do as much on air stuff, microphone or TV, as I did print, even though I knew I wanted to get into TV or radio uh, moving down the line. Because there, there, there's a couple different options you can do. And the one student radio station where all the play-by-play -play guys go through, whether it's Costas or Ian Eagle or whatever, it's W-A-E-R it's called. And it's super competitive to get into. Every single broadcasting sports major wants to get into it. And the way they have the system set up is that because there's such a plus supply and demand issue, you may not get to actually do any of the big sports until maybe one semester of your senior year, at least while I was there. And you had to put in three years of the 4 a.m. radio shifts and doing all that kind of overnight stuff to get to that. And listen, I'm a dedicated guy and I work hard and I'm ambitious, but I also knew I was only going to be in college for four years. So I still wanted to have my flip cup nights and my beer pong nights and all that kind of fun stuff. So 4 a.m. radio shifts wasn't going to do it for me. But the great thing was uh, the Daily Orange, which is the independent student newspaper uh, from SU. They've been around for more than 100 years. Uh, since the early 70s, they've been completely independent, so no funding from the school whatsoever. It's their own staff. They make their own money. And because of that, it was the most professional training I could have possibly gotten. So I started writing at that paper in their sports department literally my first semester of my freshman year on campus. And by the end of my time at Syracuse, I was able to 
move up those ranks. And yeah, I was covering the football beat. So I would be traveling to away games, you know, Florida State, UConn, actually sitting in the press box and covering these games and going into the press conferences with the actual professional writers, whether it's the Syracuse Post Standard, ESPN or Sports Illustrated or whatever. And then same thing for basketball. I didn't cover a beat for basketball, but I was able to cover a bunch of games. Uh, got yelled at by Jerry McNamara a couple times for asking stupid questions in his opinion. So that's how you know you've really made it as a sports writer is when the athletes themselves or the coaches uh, decide that your line of questioning is out of line. But yeah, I was able to yeah interview Jim Beheim and, and chat with him for different stories or people like Jim Brown, one of the greatest athletes of all time, full stop, no matter the sport. And so it was incredible because I, I learned, if not more, definitely as much working at that newspaper. And I did some other radio stuff too. There was a different FM radio station that helped cover women's basketball. So I did some play-by-play for them, which was invaluable and hosting a sports talk show covering whatever we wanted. So that was a little bit on the side there too, but definitely my newspaper experience because they put you at 19 years old next to people that have been doing this for decades and you learn on the job and on the spot uh, more than you do in any classroom. So it was that. And then the play-by-play stuff was just doing it a bit on the side on my own until I was able to get some of those opportunities in the summer once I was away from campus. Absolutely. And kind of going along, I want our listeners to understand, and, and I, you know, work in the human resources field, but you're talking about invaluable experiences. Uh, how much networking went into, you know, just, and, and I'm not just talking about from Syracuse to your next role or, but how much did, you know, you're, you're sitting next to people who've been doing it 20, 30 years. How much did networking play a part in your success? And is that something you definitely are a proponent of uh, in terms of if people are out there maybe looking for their first role in sports or maybe their next role in sports? Is networking a huge huge aspect of that it's gigantic but at the time i didn't do it at all i would say it was zero percent of what my successes were but that i I succeeded in spite of that not because of that um you know if i went back i would love to tell the 19 20 year old me hey there was actually one time where i was on the same flight as mike tarico himself to go cover a football game he was there for espn i was there for the student paper and we were literally just sitting in the same terminal in Tallahassee or Charlotte, I forget the airport, just hanging out. And I talked to him for like three minutes and then I was just scared and shy and kind of left it. And I would love to go back in time and be like, you idiot, like talk to this guy, pick his brain, uh, get some contact information, do whatever you can to maybe help further your career. Uh, Same thing at the Olympics. You mentioned I interned for NBC in 2006. Uh, The very last night there was the rap party for NBC and Bob Costas was there eating by himself, he had just finished, and he was kind of just like hanging around, like looking, like reading a newspaper all by himself. And I was there, and I was like, man, you should, this is your idol, this is your childhood idol, why don't you go up and say something to him? Um, I'd been hitting the open bar for like three hours, and that's why I felt like I would have been detrimental to me to come across to someone (laughs) in that mental state. But uh, I wish I would have had more of that insight, or foresight, I should say, to do that because now uh, it's taken me 10, 15 years to get good at networking. And I say good loosely because no one ever I think is that great at it. It's all circumstantial, but yeah, so many of my jobs and I don't know if you want to go chronologically, but when we get to a bit of my more recent work, I haven't found those jobs on monster.com or indeed or LinkedIn. I found them from people that I've worked with before saying, Hey, my friend is producing this thing. Do you mind if I put him in touch or I reach out to people like, hey, here's my new reel. Take a look. Let me know if we can ever work together. And then 
fostering those relationships and maybe it's six months or a year later, but they say, hey, I've got this project. Are you interested in auditioning for it? <laughs> so that's 100% the name of the game, especially when it comes to sports media, because like I said, a lot of these jobs, almost all of them are gated and they're closeted. You're not going to get access to them in a public forum. So you have to have that networking or else you're never going to get access to some of these things that you really want to do. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you uh, offering that up to our listeners. Um, and so kind of transitioning uh, into we touched on the Matsu miners in Alaska and and I was kind of shocked, Mike. So, you know, when I think of baseball, I think of states like Florida, Arizona. Of course, you've got all the major league teams. But when I think where does baseball go? You know, you're always thinking, you know, where spring training is, you know, the warm weather uh, in a nutshell. And so when I saw there was a college league in Alaska, um, that just baffled my mind. So talk about that. What was the weather like, you know, during that that league? And what was just that experience like being in Alaska, doing play by play for college, you know, college uh, looked like a college summer team. What was that experience like? And, and how did you uh, get that role? Hey, baby, when there's a sun for 24 hours a day, then you play baseball at some point. So that's how Alaska rolls. That's a great league. And, and to be honest, I had known about the Cape Cod League growing up. And we can get to that in a second because I went there the next year. But I was, even for a huge baseball fan like me, I was super unfamiliar with the Alaska Baseball League. But that was one case where I was in Syracuse. And the great thing about college is that especially at Syracuse, the school there is so pro helping out the students. So there were databases of internships and summer jobs, especially in the Newhouse School and the communication school. And this team, the Matsu Miners uh, in Palmer, Alaska, Palmer, Wasilla, their uh, sister towns, Wasilla most famous for being the home of Sarah Palin. I was there before she was even, I think, a councilwoman in town. So that got put on the map later. But yeah, so I, they, they put out a little ad in, in the student sort of internship section. Like, hey, looking for some play-by-play guys that want to spend two months in Alaska calling baseball. And I thought, why not? I'm 18 or 19, however old I was at the time. Uh, what else am I going to do all summer? So let's go for it. Uh, but then the more I researched it, it's incredible the guys who have played there. I mean, Tom Seaver played there, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, like a who's who. And if you Google it... It's all kinds of people, and it's only a six-team league, so you kind of play the same teams over and over. And because Alaska doesn't have that much infrastructure, you can't be supporting a 20-team league or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it was incredible, and it was my first play-by-play foray. And the funny thing was, I wasn't even hired to get that gig. I was the honorable mention. They picked two other guys because they were both a year older than me, and I think they wanted someone with more experience. But the one guy ended up backing out to take some internships somewhere else. And now I think he's out of broadcasting altogether. So joke's on him. But then they ended up uh, tapping me as sort of the backup, the substitute, which has been the story of my life for a lot of my gigs. I've kind of been the second choice, but ends up being the perfect choice. Pat myself on the back. You know, not one for false modesty. But uh, my, my broadcast partner ended up being Jamison Coyle, who's now a host for NHL Network. And he does their nightly like sports center on ice hockey. So you think about the two of us, just dumb college kids learning on the job for the first time. And it was incredible. It was our first time ever doing full baseball games because uh, Syracuse didn't have any baseball program because of all the snow and the weather up there. So how do you pace yourself for three hours? How do you set up your crowd mic. Our first couple broadcasts, we didn't have a crowd mic, and you don't realize how boring a baseball broadcast is when there's no crowd noise. It's just two guys in an empty 
room kind of talking with no ambiance or atmosphere and that sucks and it would take people pointing that out to us to realize oh we don't know what we're doing yet despite the fact we thought we were top of the world but it was awesome you know we lived with host families i know jameson would go salmon fishing with his host dad and they had him living in a loft above the garage it was like a super cool treehouse. we would go play basketball at the local gym with these guys that ended up being a bunch of them future major leaguers I saw one of our pitchers pitching for the Cardinals in the World Series six years later. I'm like, wow, I remember sharing a bunk bed with that guy in a bingo hall that we stayed on in, in the Kenai Peninsula up there. So uh, it was insane. And just being up until 2 a.m. and the sun is still shining. And there were just so many moments where you realize, wow, this is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I'm never going to get again and never thought I would get. Uh, my parents coming up there, we took – prop planes around glaciers and you're hiking on these ice mountains and just seeing moose. We had a moose come in our hotel parking lot on a road trip one time. Just like insanity, just like the most insane stuff. And it'll be a chapter in my memoir someday, but it was awesome. And it was my first gig that I was able to actually say, hey, I'm broadcasting legitimately for, for a real team. And that kind of started the domino effect of, of me getting on a microphone and making money for it. Absolutely. And, and then you have that uh, internship, which you touched on, and then you uh, went to the, uh, the Cape Cod League there in 2006. So you did both the internship and the Cape Cod League uh, there in 2006. So what was that transition like from you went into the internship and then I assume was that job and the Cape Cod League already lined up by the time you went through the internship or did that come about because of the internship? Uh, can you kind of talk about that and, and those two experiences? Yeah, 2006 was a big year for me. Um, so the internship, uh, luckily, another Syracuse program at the time, and they've expanded it to a bunch of other schools since then. But uh, NBC had a great relationship with Syracuse and getting them interns for the Sydney Olympics and the Athens Olympics. So by the time Torino came around in 06, uh, they went back to us again. And same thing as before. I interviewed and I was kind of on the honorable mention list, but then I sent a thank you note to the guy who interviewed me. And he told me later after the fact, he said, hey, it was between you and some other people. But the fact that you reached back out to me and sent me that note, that put you to the top of the list. So back to networking, always send that thank you note, always send that follow up because you never know when that's going to be the difference for you. And uh, yeah, they were totally unrelated because I did that internship as a study abroad, essentially. So my second okay. semester of my junior year, I spent a month in Italy uh, two weeks before the Olympics, two weeks during, and a week after. So a little more than two months, I guess. Or My math is off there, but you get the story. And then I did a study abroad in London for the remaining part of the semester. And uh, yeah, I had reached out already before I went away to Italy to the Cape League because I figured that was the next step up in professionalism from Alaska. And it would be a lot closer to go to Massachusetts from New Jersey in the summer than back to Anchorage and Fairbanks and all those Alaskan cities. So I reached out and there was a guy that I actually worked with at the radio station on campus in Syracuse who had already been doing play-by-play -play for a team in Cape, on the Cape. And I asked him, I said, hey man, after one day of us doing a talk show together, I said, do you know any other teams in the Cape? Would they be interested in having a broadcaster for them like you are for, for your team? Because he was the only guy that was really doing that for any of the teams up there. And he said, yeah, there's the one team, they're really receptive to this kind of stuff. And they've asked me if I know anyone, so let me put you in touch. And again, there's networking. And he was a friend of mine, so it doesn't feel like networking because you don't go to an event or you're not reaching out on LinkedIn. He was just a buddy of mine, but that's what networking is. It's building relationships. And he put me in touch with the woman who was the general manager of the Orleans 
Cardinals. Now they're the uh, Firebirds, I think, because of MLB <laughs> trademark issues. But yeah, and then uh, she heard some of my highlights from Alaska. I sent her a CD back when CDs were the thing before YouTube <laughs> or SoundCloud. And uh, she loved it. I made some pop culture reference on a home run call, and she loved the movie that I referenced. And she said, let's do it. Let's make it happen. So that was already lined up before I went to uh, Italy so that I was able to really enjoy my time there because I knew my summer was already set. And, yeah, it just felt like the next natural progression to move on. And luckily it ended up uh, pretty much falling into my lap after uh, I reached out with my buddy to, to see what that was all about. Absolutely. And, and uh, going back to the CD thing. So uh, I follow Mike on on Instagram and uh, I did see your your post today with uh, <laughs> the CD and, and listed all the songs and you're like, I need another playlist. So he, he can tell you the story. But basically it was uh, you'd found the CD from what did you say? 2005. And we're going through the playlist and we're like, what is <laughs> you know what kind of yeah. song? Can be? So my car, my car is, it's pretty old at this point. It still runs really well, but it's an 07. So there's no USB, there's no Bluetooth. All I have is uh, a CD player. There was an aux, but now since iPhones switched from the headphone jack to the lighting jack, I don't, I can't even plug my phone into my car. So all I have, if the radio sucks, is CDs while I'm driving. And all, I stopped making CDs in like 2006. So any CD in my car is going to be all songs from back then. And I found a CD while I was driving this past weekend. It was called My All-Time Favorites. I wrote it on Sharpie right on the top of the CD. January 05, a Mike Janela mix. And uh, yeah, and the songs are all great. It's just I looked back on it and I was like, there was no, no songs from any female singers, which I can't believe because there were so many that I, I love then and I love now. It kind of it jumped all over the place. It went from like, the Beatles on one track, then Tupac was the next, then Incubus, <laughs> and then Louis Armstrong, just like totally all over the place. So uh, on Twitter, because I like to give my different platforms different content, on Twitter I did a, okay, if I were to update this for now, these would be the songs that would make the cut for my all-time favorites. But yeah, it's just a trip down memory lane. The fact that <laughs> CDs, just holding a CD, there's nowhere in my apartment I could even play it. I have to go to my car, but... Things change fast, man. Technology moves. Uh, it's a river. So yeah, you got to keep it as best as you can. Yeah, and I'm laughing on my end here because, uh, you know, you talked about kind of skipping around from Beatles to Tupac, and, and that sounds just like my Spotify playlist. So you'll find, you'll find just so many different songs, different genres. You know, my favorite band, ZZ Top. But then, you know, so there might be a ZZ Top song, but then the next one might be, you know, Michael Jackson or something, you know, so it's just kind of all over the place. Hey, man, uh, legs to Billie Jean, you got to cover all your bases, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so getting back to, to your resume here, and, and um, I kind of talked about the, the playing for Peanuts, uh, and then that's how I became familiar with Mike and his work, and then have followed him over the last couple of years, and uh, we'll talk about those, some of the roles he's had uh, later on, but um, he had an appearance on there as the Anderson Joe's radio play-by-play -play announcer. And, and there's a famous scene that's on YouTube where Wally Backman, who managed the South Georgia Peanuts at the time, was ejected from the game, went on to throw 22 bats on the field. Mike was calling the game from the press box. Uh, so Mike was there. And, and, you know, it's on YouTube as like one of these, you know, uh, I don't even know what they call it. But basically it, it went viral, uh, that one little clip. But the documentary is so much more than that. It's you know, like I said, an all, you know, look at following a minor league team, it followed a minor league team, you know, for a whole season. So you got, or an independent league team. So you got to experience basically in that 10 episode documentary, 
a, you know, what it's like to be in the independent league. So, and that league only made, it was called the South Coast League. It only made it uh, one year. Um, but I want to talk about the experience with that league because, you know, the Anderson Joes were in it. There were a lot of pretty big names that, that came through as both players and managers. Uh, Desi Wilson, Phil Plantier, Cecil Fielder, uh, Jackie Washington, who recently passed away, Wally Backman, obviously. They were all uh, managers. Uh, Desi would go on and get traded, play under Wally. So he played. He's a former major leaguer. Um, and then Mike Caruso and C Curtis Goodwin, both former major leaguers. So what was that experience like? First, just being an independent league ball um, and just that league and being in, in Anderson, South Carolina. How did you land that role? And, and just really interested to hear about this. It's funny because uh, technically this is my first job after I graduated college and I had been doing the collegiate summer league for the two summers prior. So Alaska and Cape Cod. Then I go to this, which is a ostensibly a professional baseball league. And it was actually a step down you know, all the facilities, just the management, the logistics, because it was the first time it was getting off the ground. It was the one and only season. <laughs> and I I, I'm actually looking at my I have an autographed baseball from every guy that played on the Joes that year on my desk here at home. So the memories are flooding back. But, um, yeah, it was crazy because it was just it was these people that wanted to start a new league <laughs> and in a place where they felt or places they felt that there wasn't a minor league team serving the community, I guess, which is great. You always want to, you always want to serve people that feel like they're not being served. But the reason the league only lasted one year was just financial mismanagement and poor planning. Uh, the facilities were pretty terrible. I think there were only six teams in the league. Mm -hmm. One of the teams ended up losing their stadium because yep. of some eminent domain or some other teams took it over. So they ended up being a traveling team the entire season Except some of those cities were 11, 12 hours between yep. themselves. So it was just insanity to never have a homestand. I think it was Bradenton was the team. That was yep. moving. Yeah. Yep. So uh, it was just bananas. And then our stadium, I think, had been built in the 1920s. Another stadium was built in the 1910s, I think 1911 or something like that. And it was still standing. So it just – it wasn't the glamour that you expect <laughs> even from some of the nicer minor league teams uh, affiliated-wise. But – it was a great opportunity and a great summer and a huge learning experience. And the reason I got there, uh, this is probably the funniest story of how I got a job in my whole career, but there's something that they do every year at the winter meetings, the baseball winter meetings, uh, the PBEO, which is the Professional Baseball Employment <laughs> Organization, I want to say. They do a big job fair for just across all minor league baseball. It's every job from grounds crew to ticket sales to marketing to play-by-play. -play. It's just a one-stop shop, like a like a cattle call for all these people that want to work in minor league baseball. And I went there my the, the winter of my senior year, so prepping for what I was going to do after graduation. It was in Disney uh, that year, so which was great. And I go there, and I'm applying for these jobs, and I'm doing interviews on site, and I'm not getting any callbacks. I'm not getting any offers. And then my last day there, I was there for a weekend – I'm in the bathroom and I'm peeing at a urinal and a guy next to me pulls up and he's peeing too. And as I go to walk away, I notice a logo on his laptop bag that's a team I've never heard of before. And I was pretty well versed in all the minor league teams because I knew I was going to be going there looking for jobs. And so I just asked him after we were done because I didn't want to make it like an awkward conversation <laughs> while midstream. But I asked him like, oh, what team is that? I don't know that logo. And he explained, oh, we're the Aiken Foxhounds. And then he tells me we're with this new South Coast League and we're, we're here looking for people. What are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm looking for a radio job. And he said, well, we already have our guy, but 
My best friend is the GM of our other team in the league, like an hour away from us. I can put you in touch with him. They're looking for a radio person. They're not here this weekend, but they're going to start that search soon. And I said, absolutely. So then he put me in touch with this guy, and I was able to get that interview, audition, and job without him ever posting it publicly. So I kind of cut the line because I had met this other dude peeing in the bathroom. And it was just incredible where networking strikes anywhere, anytime, yep. place. But you have to know to either reach out and, and, and just introduce yourself and break down that wall and then follow up with it. And that way I was already prepared. I had all my clips. I had my highlights. I had my materials. I just needed that opportunity to present them to somebody. And I was able to get that opportunity um, by having to, I guess, drink too much water the morning of so that I ended up going to the bathroom at the exact right time uh, when that afternoon came. But it was great. I graduated Mother's Day Sunday that year, and I was calling my first game the very next Wednesday. Packed everything up, drove from Syracuse, New York, to Anderson, South Carolina on Monday. Uh, Tuesday, moved into my apartment. Wednesday, we had a game that night. So just right down to it. And um, it was great because you had some of those those former pros, and you had some guys that were on a redemption path that maybe had flamed out earlier. You had some guys who were there literally just to make a living for their family back home in various countries they had come from. And then you just had, you had that great like summer in the South baseball mm -hmm. charm, just people selling hot dogs for 50 cents and fireworks nights and heat lightning and long bus rides and mosquitoes like hell. But uh, it was just, it was just a great time. And for, for a first gig coming out of college, it was awesome. And it was 90 games. So yep. The summer leagues were 40 games each, so now I was just I was getting more reps, I was getting more practice, I was getting better pacing, and just really getting better uh, incrementally as each stop went along. At least I like to think I was getting better. Some people may tell you otherwise, but that's at least what I was thinking in my head. <laughs> yeah, and and Anderson had only one guy who played in the MLB, but uh, they had some guys on that team who had some success in affiliated minor league ball. So I've always been curious, you know, independent league ball, and, and Mike kind of touched on this is guys who have, you know, been in affiliated ball and are trying to get back, uh, or maybe a guy who got overlooked in the draft and is trying to get back into affiliated ball for the first time. So, I, so I'm curious, what is the day-to-day -day vibe like? You know, you're around the team, um, guys who've been in affiliated ball versus guys just trying to get into affiliated ball for the first time. Is there any sort of vibe or, or mentorship going on, or, or is there any difference between those two groups of players? Yes and no. Like any sports locker room, you're going to have your different cliques and your different factions and guys that maybe were both on the Yankees double-A team a few years ago. They'll obviously gravitate closer to each other, whereas guys that just came out of high school, didn't get drafted, are trying to keep the dream alive, they're going to be on their own kind of grind and figuring out that themselves. It's like any workplace too. Um, guys that would want that mentorship or that insight would seek it out and guys that didn't wouldn't uh some guys would offer it proactively and some guys would stay more to themselves unless they were asked something um having someone like desi there desi wilson mm -hmm. first as a manager then as a player manager then just as a player and before he left to go to um to south georgia like guys with the smart ones would always pick his brain we'd be on the yep. bus rides and they'd be the ones asking him like hey once you're done watching that DVD, because again, there was no streaming yet back then. Uh, do you mind if I ask you about you know, opposite field hitting or how to, how to recognize a slider? You know, they'd be the ones that would want to better themselves. And that's the case in any workplace. If you want to be better, you're going to find the people that can help you do that. So um, it definitely wasn't like a haves and haves nots. I don't think there was 
at least I didn't see any situation where the former first round pick acted like he was too hot to handle compared to everybody else. Because once you go to that level, to the independence, everyone's had some kind of a, a, a struggle or an issue or has been humbled. That first round pick, they didn't make it to the pros. That's why they're here. You know, the guy that's just struggling from the bottom because he didn't get drafted. He's here too. So everyone's kind of in that, it's sort of like an island of misfit toys kind of thing where everyone's got their own backstory and that's what really brings them all together. But it was really like any other workplace. Like I say, it's it's it, just with a baseball sheen to it. Absolutely. And and going along with that too, you know, I look at some of the attendance and, and Macon, the Macon music out of Macon, Georgia. Uh, they drew really well. South Georgia, I think they came in second in attendance that year. But then, uh, you know, you kind of, to my, my understanding is there was a, a um, good attendance to start. And then after, you know, outside of those two teams, attendance just kind of was down. Was there anything, was it the talent that was being brought in? Was it just the communities were not as, they didn't have as much uh, of a want for a baseball team as, as initially thought, or what was kind of the attendance structure like and, and why the attendance ended up what it was? Uh, I mean, I, this is now over 10 years ago, so it's it's hard to remember all the factors. But I know for Anderson, we just we sucked. They, they lost so much. So no matter what you do, marketing plans, sales plans, anything in sports, if the team's not winning, people are going to stop caring at some point. And you don't have that equity that maybe you know, the Chicago Cubs had built over mm-hmm. decades. People were still going to Wrigley even when they were terrible throughout the mm-hmm. 90s. But that's because there's the Chicago Cubs and they've had Wrigley and they have Wrigleyville and they have the Ivy and Harry Carey for 60 years or whatever. When you're the Anderson Joes, you've been around for 60 days and you're playing in a repurposed kind of rundown old stadium, doing the best you can on a shoestring budget. If you're not winning, people are going to stop caring. And uh, Anderson is right up the road, five minute drive from Clemson. So as the summer moves along, it's Clemson football time, baby. That's what people want to focus on. So if you're not giving them a good product, they're going to be going for for the Tigers and caring more about that than anything else. So, um, yeah, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, and I, every every market I remember had their own particular mm-hmm. issues or positives as well. Um, like Aiken, I remember, had a, a brand new stadium because they were playing in the college uh, team stadium. So everything was state of the art. So that wasn't an excuse for them. But, yeah, winning winning does a lot to help things go, and losing does a lot to help things uh, stagnate. So I think it was just a combination of, of a lot of that stuff. Plus, when you're sitting outside in the middle of, of South Carolina, hours away from the nearest body of water in August, and it's 105 <laughs> degrees with humidity, that's not a pleasant thing. So that's also going to be something that, that factors into it as well. Absolutely. And I remember one in particular, I believe it was Anderson, where they said Shoeless Joe Jackson had played on that field. Um, but that stadium didn't even have a locker room, to my knowledge. So the players were having to, or at least for the visiting team, uh, or, or maybe it was another team, but one of the one of the stadiums did not have a locker room for the visiting team. Yeah, it was something. There was a trailer. Um, I forget, but yeah, I remember they had to walk from some room or some trailer that wasn't even connected to the stadium or to the field in any way. I remember guys just doing like a two minute march in their cleats and all their gear uh, to get to the field and where they were. Um, yeah, it was just. It, it, it was run down, uh, to say the least. And, yeah, like you said, the fact that Shoeless Joe was playing uh, in this place goes to tell you that it wasn't fit for modernity, yeah, for modern times. Uh, I mean, I'm looking on the Wikipedia right now. I don't even know what year it was opened uh, beats me. But 
Um, yeah, it was just, it, it wasn't meant for professional baseball. That's for sure. Absolutely. So, uh, you, you, Anderson, oh, sorry, I want to correct myself because earlier I said it was built in like the 1910s. I was confusing that with the Macon stadium. So Anderson Memorial stadium, home of the Joes was built in 1970. So oh. if it was, if it was kept up well, then yeah. it should definitely still be okay to use. But, um, yeah, it was very bare bones and, uh, Anything built in 1970, it was, would be very hard to foresee what would be needed by professional athletes in the 21st century. So you can't blame them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And 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 then the league folds after that year, as you, as you mentioned. And uh, you yourself then got the call into affiliated ball uh, with the Hickory Crawdads as their uh, play-by-play content media relations person. Um uh, at the time, they were the single-A affiliate of the Pirates, and a couple guys with MLB experience came through. Brad Lincoln, Duke Welker, Adam LaRoche had a very brief stint, assuming a rehab assignment there. Yeah, so, it was. In my, so my question is, you know, single-A, when, when a guy with MLB experience or big name, because Adam LaRoche, you know, big name, comes in for rehab assignment or a first-round pick is placed at this level – what changes in terms of your role with the team? Being media relations, do you have to make the clubhouse like not as accessible to the media? Are you feeling a lot more media, like press credential requests? What's uh, How does your day-to-day change when an MLB player comes in? Well, first of all, you eat better in the postgame because they buy Outback Steakhouse for everybody. That was Adam LaRoche's thing. I remember that. He got normally the postgame spread. It's peanut butter and jelly, protein yep. bars, grapes, bananas. He was there for, I think, three games or something, and he bought Outback every single night. Most popular guy on the team that whole season, and he was there for for less than a week. Um, Yeah, it it comes down to what upper management wants. An affiliated ball, it's all about what the big club says in most Mm -hmm. cases. So in that case, uh, you know, the Pirates were like, yeah, he can give interviews and and do whatever. Uh, Just make sure to, you know, feel the requests first, run it by our media relations person to make sure everything's in the up and up. But it was no nothing about restrictions or anything like that. But they they also could say, okay, we don't want to make him available after this game because he has to get on a flight to come up to Pittsburgh now to finish the rehab. So stuff like that where everything on the player personnel side, everything about minor league baseball and the affiliateds is about the pipeline, getting them to the next level, getting them eventually to help the big club. Everything on the organizational side the the theme nights and the attendance and the community service projects that's all for the community and the local team but when it once it comes down to uh the players themselves yeah you have to keep everything in mind with the big picture but uh it was fun yeah people would you'd have to email me it was something i'd always been on the other side of that i am the media i was never the person that's the relations part of it so it was interesting having newspaper writers email me hey can i get five minutes with Adam before a game or Brad Lincoln was just debuting. Hey, can I get him for, for a piece uh, that we're working on about his journey or whatever? So um, yeah, it was all, all part of the gig and, and definitely gave me more of an appreciation for the people in PR that do that all the time. Cause it definitely is a full-time job in itself. It's just that when you're down in single a, you wear 30 different hats, no matter who you are in the organization. So it was good. It was a, a fun learning experience. And I'm happy I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, and then from there, you went and uh, you were studio host and producer for IMG College Broadcasts of Villanova uh, football, men's basketball. Again, a, another very, uh, very well-storied uh, athletic department. And also UNC Greensboro Athletics. You were play-by-play and multimedia host for for them. So kind of going back to that college level there, what is the biggest difference in terms of the media between 
the college level and you know the professional level what were some some things maybe during that pro experience that you took with you to to the college level and then leaving you know Villanova and UNC Greensboro on you know when you went and went with the Padres what were some things you took from those experiences and applied there well, it's weird because especially when you just start off, it, it's all very fluid. So, for example, the Anderson Joes technically were a professional baseball team. Mm-hmm. The Villanova Wildcats were a collegiate football and basketball program, which is what I was hosting. So you would think just on paper, it looks like, oh, maybe that's a step backward because you're going from the pros to uh, college. But as anyone who knows anything about mm-hmm. college sports knows, those big time programs, it's actually the complete opposite. And yep. same thing for, even for UNC Greensboro, which is Southern Conference. It's not a power five conference, but it still has a lot more riding in terms of uh, protocols and logistics and reputation than uh, a, a, a baseball minor league that just started off out of nowhere, out of the ether and was gone within less than 12 months. So you just have to you have to learn a lot more about the rules that are in place and and the fan bases that are there. Uh, when I was broadcasting Anderson Joe's games, I would get maybe there were some games when 35 people would be listening to the radio broadcast and the online broadcast combined. Now I'm hosting the Villanova Wildcats men's basketball Sweet 16 March Madness pregame show or halftime show. Okay, a lot more people than 35 are listening right now, and it's on an ESPN affiliate. Even though I'm broadcasting out of North Carolina, it's getting beamed to uh, every sports station in Philadelphia and the surrounding area, and people are caring about this team that ended up going to the Final Four that year. So that's a huge, huge spotlight on you now. That's a lot different than people listening to, to Joe's baseball. So you just you, you learn that also – it's not about you anymore. Like when I was with the Joes, I kind of had free run where I could, I could joke with the people that were watching on air. It's like, Hey, it's the third inning. Email me some of your questions. I'll answer them in the fifth inning. Whenever there's a break in play or something, you don't do that with Villanova. They're not here to, it's not the Mike Janela show. They're here to listen to their Wildcats. And you just kind of learn that it's less about you. The more you go up and it's more about presenting the product and delivering that to the people. Um, Same thing with UNC Greensboro. I remember one of my charges there was to also just increase the profile of the digital content department and the athletic department. And so I met with a guy at a local TV station and talked about getting him a video, highlighting all the things that we do and being able to play it as an advertisement, as a commercial during some of their programming. And uh, he went ahead and actually played it before ever getting my approval during the Oscars, I think, that year, I remember. And so it was good in a way that we got a lot of uh, notoriety in the local market. But then you're damn right, I got an email the next morning from my boss, like, who gave you authorization to have these meetings or to, to give this video out? Or I remember I, I did a content, I did a, a video about the men's soccer team and a recent good stretch they had. And I used some music that was definitely not cleared for trademark because I thought, oh, I can just use whatever song I find online and it's free because it's open to the public. But no, that's not how trademark and copyright and royalties work. And so I got in trouble for that. And so basically you learn that, oh, all the stuff you could do in college because you're a student and it's all free use or all the stuff that you can do in a little backwoods league that nobody's watching because it just didn't exist. That, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, but that stuff 
uh, doesn't fly when you get to these next levels. So there were some real learning curves and, and growing pains for me personally that definitely, I think, made me a better broadcaster and just media person in the long run. But yeah, you learn you learn very much the hard way sometimes that, that things do escalate real quickly. And uh, the farther up the ladder you go, you know, Major League Baseball is going to have a lot more rules and regulations than college sports, minor league baseball, whatever. So it's just acclimating yourself and realizing that you have to adapt because that's the show. You're not the show. The show is what's existed for many, many years before you. And if you want to fit in and succeed, you got to learn how to play by, by that game. Absolutely. And, and with that too, uh, and you had talked about, you know, kind of a big time program like Villanova, that's a step up. So, you know, being a, being in your shoes at uh, whatever age you were with, uh, I guess, Anderson and then with Hickory, were you always thinking ahead in terms of this is where uh, I want to be like next year, five years from now? Did you kind of have a plan in place and, and how did you uh, present that in a way to, because ultimately you're going to need to use, you know, your, your current supervisors leads as, as references. So how did you present that in a way where it's like, Hey, I want to continue to move up, but my focus is also, here as well with Hickory or with Anderson, was there any sort of discussions you had in terms of this is where I want to go in my career or did you just kind of let it, let it, you know, just kind of let it guide you and, and you did it on your own? It was always looking to the next step and you have to in that business or a local sports business. It's always, okay, I'm getting my first job as the local sports person in Missoula or Biloxi or whatever. I want to do two years there. Then I want to move up to, Louisville or Topeka. Then I want to do Seattle or Denver. And then I want to make it to Chicago or LA or New York. Like anyone who, who tells you that's not their mindset at the beginning, I think is lying to you because nobody ever wants to go to market 175 and just stay there forever. Um, right. Some people do, but I don't think that's most people's plan. Um, so for me at that level, it was always, yeah, okay. I did Alaska. What's going to be the next step up? It's Cape Cod. What's the next step after that? It's going to be a minor league team. Okay, it wasn't an affiliated team, so my next step would be an affiliated team. And it was always going to be that that move up. Uh, I shifted away from doing play-by-play before it got to that point in my career where maybe I find a double-A team or a triple-A team and stay there for five, ten years while I wait for a major league gig to open up. So I, I never got to that point of it. I was kind of always one stop per year and then moving on. But everyone's different. I never had those conversations really with my bosses because I figured why bother them at the time and also why make it look like I'm not focused on here because I always was. Uh, I never, right. never, 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 and to this day never do. I never let any other ambitions or other projects affect whatever work I'm doing. I'm 100% in on whatever I'm doing. But also there's a lot of hours in the day and there's a lot of months right. in the year to allow you to focus on what might be next or what your next step would be. Um, it's like a shark. Sharks can still eat, but if they stop moving, then they die. So you always got to be moving and thinking about the next thing. Um, and, and it's weird because we're, we're not necessarily in sports media like many other industries. Every job, not every job, but so many jobs that I've gone for they don't ask for references or they don't ask for the permission of your current boss. Um, if you don't have a contract, it's kind of just at will. And the good news is that for the employer, they can say, hey, the show just isn't bringing in enough viewers or we don't have the money anymore. We can't keep you any longer. So that's where the at will comes into benefit for them. It comes into benefit for the, the, the talent in saying, 
well, I got this better offer at a bigger city or whatever, and I, I want to leave. And as long as you're respectful on both sides and understandable and have a good relationship, then I think everyone kind of knows that's the name of the game. And that's how this has worked for years and how it's going to continue to work. Um, once you get to somewhere like ESPN and you're hosting Sports Center and you have a five-year contract, obviously things are a little bit different. But in those lower levels, it's kind of the Wild West where everyone just knows, hey, turnover is built into the to the algorithm, so to speak. So... Yeah, as long as as long as your stuff was good, that was the number one thing. And as long as you were free and available, and there were some times where I had that relationship, like with the South Coast League, that league folded. So I was able to talk to my boss from that year and say, hey, would you mind being a reference for me or throwing a good word to this new job that I'm looking for? And he was 100% down for that. But then when I was with the Hickory Crawdads, I took that job at IMG, which was ISP at the time, and I did it without asking my boss. And he actually saw that I had posted or something on Facebook that I was doing that. And he was kind of upset about it, rightfully so, that I never even brought it up to him because he wanted to make sure there was no conflict of interest or a conflict of schedules. I knew there wouldn't be. So it was almost one of those things where I didn't tell you because I didn't think it would be a big deal because it wouldn't be a big deal. But to him, it was. And it's all about just kind of fielding out the other partner in that partnership and, and what goes with them. But um, yeah, it goes back to not finding these jobs on websites or, or things in the public. It's similar when you apply for these jobs. A lot of times it's just, hey, send me a link. If I like it, then we'll bring you in and, and, and see if, you, if you're up to, to snuff with this stuff. So uh, it, it's a different game for everybody. But the biggest thing is just learning your situation and, and, and vibing with whatever works out best for you and, and the people that you're dealing with. For sure, for sure. And I, like I said, I appreciate you offering that to our listeners about, you know, not just sports, but their job career, how they can kind of navigate their career path. And and you went on to, uh, from 2009 to 2014, we're a Guinness World Records judge and yeah. uh, flew around, flew around maybe the world, but I know the country. I even read an article where you had flown to St. Louis, where I, I live here in downtown St. Louis, uh, for to, to judge something. So what was Largest that? bikini parade. Did oh, not... Largest- did not succeed. Um, yeah, St. Louis in the beginning of April or end of March uh, for a bikini parade. It's not bikini weather, so not that many people showed up. It was unsuccessful. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and you start off as the sports records manager. So just kind of that experience, and, and then we'll talk about your your time when you got the call. We'll call the call to the big leagues here with the Padres, and then now with the Mets. But what did that experience, uh, being that that records judge, uh, what did that experience do for you in your career to get you to the the next roles there? And then what, just kind of talk about the experience in general and the people you met and, and all that. It was awesome. Uh, I had just moved. My plan was, okay, I had lived in the South for a couple of years, but I wanted to get back to New York. It's where I'm from. It's where I want to be. I'll move back and I'll figure it out. And I had a really hard time finding jobs in sports once I moved back. Then I saw Guinness was opening, or Guinness World Records, I should say, because I went through my brand training. It's never just Guinness. Uh, and I'm always, <laughs> I'm always loyal to the brands, even afterward. So Guinness World Records was opening their offices in New York, their uh, New York outpost, American outpost. And they were looking for a sports records manager. So I figured, okay, I'm working in sports still, just a little bit off the beaten path. But it was great. And it gave me a... Just on a human level, yeah, I got to travel to all around the country for sure, but also um, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, uh, Japan, India, 
I was on an Indian TV commercial for dishwashing detergent uh, that aired like nationally. Uh, somehow uh, someone sent me a YouTube clip of that one time. I was like, oh, I'm big in India and in Mumbai. It's great. Um, London, all over the place. So just on a human level, it allowed me to experience so much of the world and so many different people and getting to meet record breakers, whether it was people that did fitness records or the woman with the longest fingernails or the people who owned the tallest dog. Like you just meet all these amazing people that allow you to connect with people better. And I've been thinking about this a lot with all of the uh, racial unrest with the George Floyd killing fallouts going on in the country now and how so many of the problems are people just not understanding where other people are coming from. And I think that's that was a huge thing for me to now put that in a professional perspective, like those five years, I take those stories, I take those relationships, I take those bonds to every future job I've had. And I can almost have a connection with any stranger you put me with, because I've either been to their home state, or I've met a hero of theirs, or I've uh, interacted with someone that they've seen themselves on TV sometimes. There's just always a connection, which I think is such an important thing, no matter what you do for work. Uh, and then the, the other thing was that it just gave me a, an air of legitimacy uh, to say you work for Guinness World Records. Everyone knows what Guinness World Records is. You either bought the book as a kid or your grandfather had it or you saw it in the library or your grandma used to watch the TV shows or or you saw like the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, which is the same parent company somewhere in your hometown. Like everyone knows that. So to be able to put that on a resume was amazing because if nothing else – it's a conversation starter. And then I was able to, once I was inside there, and this is a tip for any kind of content person, once you're in somewhere for a different job, if you want to do something else, see if you can weasel yourself into those opportunities. Like we weren't doing any original YouTube content when I was there, but I said, guys, I have this broadcasting background. I've been broadcasting for years now at this point. Let me do a YouTube show. Let me interview record holders that live in the New York area. I'll take the subway out there and a camera and just do an interview series. Or we'll do like the coolest records of the week or the best new sports records of the month and put it on YouTube, put it on our social. We have all this amazing content. We're not taking advantage of it. So they let me do that. And now it's just, again, adding assets to your your portfolio. And so now when I was looking for other jobs, I was able to put a clip of me interviewing the oldest uh, or the longest career sportscaster, uh, the late great Bob Wolf, rest in peace. I was able to chat with him and now someone's like, wow, this guy interviewed a dude who was in the baseball and basketball broadcasting hall of fames and got to call Don Larson's perfect game and titles for the Knicks. Like, okay, he must be pretty legit. So uh, yeah, the professional aspect, it definitely gave me a chance to say, hey, look what I can do for these guys with 98% brand recognition worldwide. I can definitely do something for you. Let's talk. And uh, that was that was a, an awesome thing for me. And it was able to give me five years and be able to save some money and accrue a biweekly paycheck because in this job in sports media, you don't get that for many long stretches. Um, so it was dope. It was great. And memories that I'll never forget. It was just an incredible job, but uh, yeah, it had its ceiling and it had its, its end of the runway for me personally, but mm -hmm. the time I was there, um, fantastic. Absolutely. And and then you, you know, from there went to the San Diego Padres. Now you're uh, quote unquote, you know, you, you've made it to the show. You were the talk show host producer and blogger. You worked directly for the Padres. Talk about, you know, that experience. And then just being, you know, on the West coast instead of, you know, the East coast was, was, was there any differences there in terms of just, uh, your, your brand or how you deliver broadcast because of, you know, where you were located at or, or what was, uh, just talk to me about that experience. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, a huge, and there's, there's a huge difference between even like LA and San Diego and they're only 90 minutes apart. So to go from New York to San Diego was super night and day. I loved it. I'd been to San Diego before. Amazing city. I love the time I was there. So to be able to go there was great on its own, but to be able to go there for a major league baseball team and to literally host a TV show for them on Fox sports and our regional sports network, this was a dream come true in a lot of ways, but yeah, definitely. There was a lot of backlash when I first got hired uh, on social media, which never read the comments. That's my biggest uh, professional piece of advice to anybody on camera. But there's a lot of people wondering why this New York City guy is coming to talk to us about our team. Why not somebody that grew up following the Padres, loving the Padres, rooting for the Padres? And don't get me wrong, I had known a lot about the Padres because I've known a lot about Major League Baseball in general growing up. Like, I loved the sport. And so I knew a lot about all of its teams, but yeah, I'd be lying if I said I was an expert on the Padres before I got out there. I studied my ass off to become an expert in a very short amount of time, but yeah, for sure. They all had valid arguments about bringing this guy in, but by the end of it, just do your best, be you. And if it's the right fit, people are going to come around to you. And they did when they ended up letting me go later that summer, those same, a lot of the same people that were questioning why I was coming over in February were wondering why I was leaving in August and, you know, and, and, and being mad about that and upset about it, which, which made me feel amazing because whenever you can sort of turn someone that was against you even a little bit into someone that's for you, that's one of the most gratifying experiences that anyone can have, no matter your line of work or, or walk of life. But yeah, I had to, I, they told me at sometimes, you know, you, you dress to New York. We got to get you a new wardrobe because you're on camera now. So they actually had a stylist that met with me at a department store. Like, hey, here are the kind of pants you should be wearing. Here are the types of shirts you should be wearing. Uh, these shoes you've been wearing, stop wearing those, that kind of stuff. Uh, I had, there was another job that I had between uh, Guinness World Records and the Padres where I was doing sort of fast-paced, two-minute, uh, news of the day, pop culture, entertainment, like blah, 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 like quick hitter videos for a bunch of different companies. And when they saw that, they said, okay, you talk too fast. You talk to New York. So slow it down. San Diego is a beach town. People are chilled. Um, so slow it down. And so, yeah, I had to kind of like fix my cadence. And then I went a little bit too far in the other direction. Then I was like too chill. Then they were telling me, okay, speed it back up. Like we need a little bit more life. So it's all a bit of a learning curve, no matter where you are, but definitely you have to, when you're not on a national level, when you're on a local level, you have to cater to your local audience. And that doesn't mean pick up a Boston accent if you're moving to Boston to cover their sports teams. In fact, don't do that at all. Um, but yeah, you have to learn the local references, the local lingo, the local history, what the people are talking about. And it, it was a, a huge change for me. Plus San Diego in general, it's just, like I said, a very chill city. So people like to hang out. They like to go surfing at six in the morning and they get on their lunch break. They like to go hiking. They like to do yoga on the beach. They like to bicycle. Um, I like to go to movies. I like to sit inside and watch Netflix. I like to <laughs> go to trivia nights and, and that's all stuff they have there. But obviously it's a much more active and outdoorsy kind of place. And so for me, it was definitely a change, but one that I was super happy to, to experience because, again, I got to, I got to be in the big leagues, which was my dream come true. So it was great. Absolutely. And then, obviously, now we're not playing. It's not a, not a typical season, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, last year you, you became the New York Mets game day stadium host. So you're on the video board. You're the MC, And you're the ones who, you know, at times – 
you know, maybe the first person when fans are walking into the ballpark, you have an opportunity to make a first impression on the fans. If it's their first time to city field, you know, then there you are on the video board. You're like the first person they see when they get to their seat on the video board. So kind of talk to me, what is the day to day like, and how do you, um, and I'm talking about like, not obviously right now, but with that, what was your day to, or what was your day to day like? And then how, did you, because baseball is a long season, as you know, um, 81 home games, plus, you know, if your team like the Mets recently or the Cubs, the playoffs, how do you just keep focused on that day-to-day grind of, you know, hey, I, every day I'm at the ballpark? Well, it's certainly not for everybody. Uh, a lot of people get burned out. A lot of people hit a wall. Uh, I personally love it. And I think it's just a matter of conditioning. Like, What's every, every team you ask me about that I've worked for, every baseball team, it's been a slow progression. It was in Alaska, a 40-game season. In Cape Cod, a 44-game season. Anderson was 90. Hickory was 140. Uh, San Diego was 162. We were on – that show aired 181 out of 182 days. The only day we had off was the day after the All-Star game. And even then, it was just because there was a horse race that had to preempt our time slot. Otherwise, we would have been nonstop for – uh, almost six months. So it's just, so when you go to the Mets and it's only quote unquote 81 games, I'm only doing the home games, not the home and the road. It actually was a, a, a like a, an easy step down from doing the Padres, the full schedule, but uh, it's a different beast altogether. But for me, it's, yeah, just, it's been getting that conditioning professionally, but also I was that kid that was watching baseball all summer long. I would have the games on on a Tuesday night in July when I'm home from school or listening on the radio while I'm in my parents' pool on an August Thursday or whatever. And so for me, I kind of grew up in this. So that helps a lot. And I think you'll know the, notice a lot of people in baseball are baseball people. Um, you know, it's the woman who had been watching games since she was two. It's the guy who played through high school and you get used to that grind. It becomes part of you. And that makes it a lot easier than I think some people that come from other sports or from outside of sports altogether. They're like, wow, this is a lot. But for people that are really into it, they'd have it no other way. Um, the day to day. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it for, for the job I do, if you go to, you know, vets games, you'll see in any team, you'll see a lot of things that are the same. It's, uh, it's the same trivia contest every fifth inning, every night. It's the same, uh, home run kids, home run derby, uh, every third inning, every night you have these sponsorships that you, you have these great activations that are exciting for people. But, uh, for us, like it, it gives you the templates, like we know, okay, uh, every night we're going to have these things. So that takes away the having to prepare for it every single day. Once you have those things locked in, you kind of know what you're in for the rest of the year. But then there's always new stuff. There's, hey, we have a member of the 69 Mets is coming to the game tonight. We want to do a quick interview with him or he's going to be with you as part of one of your one of your spots. Uh, let's meet about that and what we're going to talk to them about. Uh, we have this new event. We have a new sponsor. We have a new thing, whatever. So there's always things that are going on. So, yeah, it's just show up to the ballpark a couple hours early, just like the players or the broadcaster. You show up early, get your prep, go through your meetings, and then it's showtime. Once that yep. camera light's on and the lights are on and the people are in the gates, they put the microphone in the hand, and it's, uh, it's an adrenaline rush for me uh, every single time. And I had my, my co-host with me, uh, Emily Rapper, all of last season. We had a third co-host for select games as well, um, Alex Jaimo. Shout out to her. But – yeah, you, you kind of have this sort of brotherhood and this electricity that even when it is game nine of an 11-game homestand in the middle of August and you're sweating through your shirt hoping nobody sees it on camera, for me at least, 
uh, every single time was still fresh and exciting and never got old. And yeah, some nights, like I remember there were some nights I, I had a date planned for after a game and the game goes 13 innings. So, hey, sorry, got to cancel the date. Can we reschedule? But there's no place I'd rather be. You're at a, a you know, a baseball game getting paid to, to be there. And when the Mets win on a walk-off in that 13th, like, I'm sorry, woman, I was going to go see you tonight, but this is pretty awesome. And, you know, it, it's great that I have that opportunity. I don't take it for granted at all because working in sports is some of the best stuff that anybody can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, it's 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 a different uh, – I don't know. There's just something about going to a game in New York too that makes it – of course, you know, I worked for the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox, and we touched on the Cubs great – you know, great history and, and the Wrigley Fields being able to go there every day was awesome. But, you know, I've been to, I went to City Field uh, for a tour uh, late last year. I went to a game at Old Yankee Stadium, went to a game at New Yankee Stadium, been to Madison Square Garden a couple of times for Knicks and a Rangers game. Um, there's just something about going to a game in New York. And I can't, maybe, you know, you're from that area. Maybe you can describe it to me, but there's just a different energy. And, and I don't know where it comes from, but it's just, I feel like you're almost on top of the world once you've seen seen a game in New York. I'm biased, but I'm going to say that's anything New York. Uh, just walking down the street, you're going to feel that. Going to a movie here, there's going to be that energy you don't get anywhere else. Um, walking in the park, just it sounds cliche, and I sound like the most obnoxious New York person ever. I think there's been so many times in, in TV shows and movies where it's the person that's like, oh, you just don't get it. There's an energy. And I, I know I sound like a complete tool. Uh, the way I talk about it, but it's true. It, it's a collection of just the amount of people that are here, the passion they have for whatever it is they're <laughs> passionate about, the different kinds of people, the the so many different uh, backgrounds, whether it's uh, an ethnic background or a societal background or a financial background. There's just people here that even if they look exactly the same as you, they're going to have a completely different backstory um, to you. So I think just that whole melting pot thing, the 24 hours a day thing, the subway doesn't mm -hmm. stop here, pandemic notwithstanding, um, you know, Times Square, the lights are always on. It's yep. just, that's what the city is. So yeah, ball game. Uh, look, other places can match it, you know, Fenway Park on an October night or Wrigley in the seventh inning stretch on a, on a day game in the middle of the summer. Uh, I've seen a lot of places. I remember the 2001 World Series, the Diamondbacks, who had only existed for what, less than 10 years? And yeah. the Bob, what it was called at the time, for that World Series, that place was rocking. They were off their off their bananas chairs. It was insane. So uh, places can get to that, but I think nowhere delivers that as consistently uh, as New York. Absolutely. Again, I'm biased, but, you know, that's that's what I'm supposed to do as a New Yorker is kind of <laughs> perpetuate that superiority complex. Absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in a small town of 6,000 people in southwest Missouri. And it's, you know, shout out to, to my hometown. And I've lived in Chicago, lived in, you know, now downtown St. Louis. But since I was in middle school, I always had this dream of living to New York. And just, you know, last year I went uh, three times this year. I had already went, had a second trip planned. I was actually was going to go to a Mets game and, uh, but I was there earlier in the year when, um, the Rangers player, and forgive me, and I'm going to say his name wrong, but Nika Zamarja, uh, scored five goals in one game. And, and, Nika, and the Rangers. Nika Zibinijad, yeah. Yep. 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 I told you I'd say it wrong, but that's uh, all right. I got paid by MSG to say it right, so uh, we're <laughs> different experiences for that. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, but anyway, I was there for that, and and that was my first Rangers game, and, and of course you'll remember this name, uh, Theo Fleury, who uh, 
you know, my favorite hockey player of all time. So I'd always wanted to go to a Rangers game and I wore my, my, my Rangers flurry Jersey. Um, and then I went to an Islanders game two, two days later. And, and like I said, there's just something about that New York experience and being there, the central park, the times square, the, the history. And so why it's my favorite city, Mike. <laughs> You're not the only one on this call. Let me tell you. So I'm glad there's a consensus here between the two of us. Yeah. So you ready for the last part of our podcast here? I call it a Tyler's five and it's just five fun, random questions that have absolutely nothing to do with anything. Bring it on. Let's go. All right. First question, Mike. Gatorade or Powerade? Gatorade. Not even a question. 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you there. Uh, so unless, now this... unless Powerade is sponsoring any show that I'm on, then Powerade all the way. But no, <laughs> my personal preference is Gatorade. <laughs> Favorite place to go to New York City? And I'm going to preface it by saying outside of City Field. Outside of City Field? I dig <laughs> it. Um uh great question because it depends on the mood i'm not that kind of person that has like their bench in the park they love to go to um i am gonna say there is a uh there's a a speakeasy bar that i love going to uh always called the back room uh lower east side it's not that much of a secret anymore because you can just Google it, how to get in there. But uh, I feel super New York-y whenever I go there. I take people there. And, uh, yeah, so that's my spot. I'll probably think of a better answer once this call is over. But for the purposes of answering now on the spot, we'll go with that. All right. Awesome. If you think of something, email me. Let me. You've got my email. Let me know. So next time I'm in New York, I can, uh, I'm definitely going to try out that place you just mentioned, too, for sure. No, please uh, do. Enjoy. Uh, so third, if you could only listen to one song in the rest of your life, uh, what would that what would that song be? Very timely question because I had to redo my all time favorites uh, track list with the <laughs> CD that I found this week. Um, it's uh, with this question because I ask people this kind of question or a similar spin on it a lot. Is you know, the the trap is the easy trap is okay. Pick your favorite song, but if your favorite song is only two minutes, you're going to hear that song a lot more often. You pick a longer <laughs> song. There's more of that song to hear. It'll keep you less bored as time goes on. So uh, with that in mind, I would probably pick um, American Pie, Don McLean, mm-hmm. the extended yep. version, like the nine-minute version. So yep. that way, there's so much of that song, so many different parts to it. I would pick that just so I'd be more entertained over the years, whereas like yesterday is only two minutes and 12 seconds or something, and that would get old really fast. Absolutely. I, I agree with you on that. So, and, and kind of going uh, against the advice you just gave was uh, instead of favorite song. So what's your favorite movie then? So kind of changing the twist there a little bit. Uh, can I cop out and say, I can't pick one for this. Um, I, that's my one thing with movie. I love movies. I, I watch them all the time, but to pick a favorite, it's just, it depends on my mood. depends on my age. Uh, I guess my default answer is Field of Dreams, just because I watched okay. that when I was young, the baseball thing, the father-son connection thing. Um, but now as I get older and I rewatch it, some parts of it still hold up and still get me. But now there are parts where I watch, I'm like, man, this is corny or this is so <laughs> like poorly done. Um, and I'd rather watch, I don't know, The Last Jedi or Shawshank Redemption or something else completely different. But uh, yeah, I guess for the sake of picking one, I'd say Field of Dreams, but if you catch me on the right day, it could be like Coco from Pixar, or it could be something just completely altogether different. For sure. And then I'll give you a movie here that's on my list that's uh, totally New York is uh, the movie Big Daddy with Adam Sandler. And this goes to show how much I uh, 
I would watch that movie. So when I was in New York and I believe it's 2014. So the McDonald's there, I believe it's in Greenwich village, uh, the Hooters, it's no longer there. Uh, but I went to all those places where that was filmed at just because <laughs> I've been to McDonald's how many times grew up, you know, right down the street from one, but I had to go to that McDonald's where big daddy was filmed. So big I don't daddy know. If McDonald's is- man. I dig yeah. it. I do that all the time. Um, the, the bench in Savannah, Georgia, where Forrest Gump sat on, uh-huh. I went to that, like, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So I totally respect that. Absolutely. Last question, Mike, here. If you had to spend a month in any city not named New York, what city would that, and, and I'm going to preface that also, uh, any surrounding community. So you got to kind of think not New York, you know, that Northeast kind of corridor there. Uh, what city would that be and why? Uh, this one's easy. It's also kind of a cheat. Uh, it would be Lisbon in Portugal. Um, and that's because I am Portuguese. Uh, my family is uh, immigrants from Portugal on all sides, 100%. I'm a dual passport holding citizen. I've been to Portugal a ton. We have family there. Um, I love Lisbon, probably my favorite city outside of New York. So uh, if you give me a month to be able to go out there and just chill, uh, I would absolutely love it. It's my second home, and that's uh, 100% it. Um, if you want another answer besides that, because that's a bit cheating because of my personal history with it, uh, it would be London. I've been there six or seven times. It, I love the history. Uh, I love the fact that I can speak English, but also get so many other cultures and uh, you know things that I can get to enjoy. And I have friends there still. Just the whole culture there, I'm just all about it. So uh, those are my. I give you two answers: one, one personal one, and then one a bit more generic. Those are good answers. And Mike, I really appreciate your time. Uh, had a really enjoyed our conversations. I know our listeners uh, are going to as well. So, and I tell you what, let's, uh, when, when the, this baseball season gets started, I'm going to be optimistic here and, and uh, maybe the Mets make a playoff run. Let's, let's have you back on when that happens to, to talk about the baseball season. How does that sound? Hey man, you got it. Sounds good to me. Mike Janella, folks on the sports clock.